My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Rob Holmes is the founder and co-owner of EcoCattle, a ranch in northeast Kansas that raises grass-fed meat using regenerative agricultural processes. Before founding EcoCattle, Rob was a biology professor at Hutchinson Community College. Rob earned a PhD in plant biology with a minor in biotechnology from North Carolina State and an undergraduate degree in botany from BYU. I hope you enjoy learning from Rob Holmes today, because I always do. Rob, it's great to be able to chat with you today. I met you a couple years ago here in Kansas. But then we found out our families go way back. When I met your father, we realized that he grew up in the same small town as my grandparents and great-grandparents. He knew them well. And he told me stories about my family that I didn't even know, that my siblings didn't even know. And so then I'm like messaging my mom and she's like, oh yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> nothing, nothing bad. But um, anyway, it was so interesting to connect with him. And then uh, we also figured out that your brother married my first cousin. So something in the stars has connected our families. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, my dad, uh, he loves Teton Valley, Idaho, and he has every fact and statistic filed away. And he's a professor, right? So he's... he's Correct. Yeah, he was a history professor. So it comes comes natural to him. Well, he probably didn't expect that his son would have done all of the things that his son has done. Uh, and one of those things that his son has done is is you're you're now our beef guy. Uh, we buy our beef from you, but you've done so much more than that. And so I was wondering if we could just start with uh, maybe an overview of kind of your uh, you you could do personal arc slash professional arc, and then maybe we can uh, go into a little bit more detail on some of those things that you've you've done. Yeah, absolutely. So the. Funny thing is, my dad grew up in a small rural town, so he's to this day just doesn't understand the appeal of getting back into agriculture. <laughs> he worked so hard to get away from the get small town. And, you know, for so many of those guys, they view that, oh, that's something you do because you have to, not because you love it and want to do it. Now, there are a lot of people in ag who love it and wouldn't trade it, but there's also the run away from it mentality and that's certainly <laughs> that's certainly the side he's on I think they're starting to understand me though yeah so growing up I was just always fascinated with nature I remember one of my really good friends to this day he says yeah I'd try to come over to play and you'd say I can't come over I'm watching nature on PBS and so I was just always fascinated with the natural world real and quick and I remember doing that you know like I'm playing video games, you know, like uh, kind of busy with video games. Maybe we'll just play a little later, but you're you're watching. How old is this that you're watching old, nature? Five, six, seven oh my gosh. years old. Yeah. Yeah. My dad subscribed me to the Ranger Rick magazine, <laughs> which is all about nature and the outdoors and stuff like that. Um, so always had an affinity for that. And in high school, we had excellent biology teachers at my high school and one of them Merrill Webb he's just famous for getting everyone into birding so he'd take us all out birding and get us excited about learning all the different kinds of birds around the state what's that like when you go birding oh you just take your binoculars and 
beat the bushes and just try to see everything you can. You know, it's, it's, so there's a little bit of a game to it, right? How many species can I spot today or this month and, and so forth? And it's just nice to be outside. And it's, it's a, it's a challenge, right? To how many can I get? And there's always the one that gets away that you don't identify in the moment. And that keeps you going back for more. Uh, and then I had another great teacher in high school. She worked with a professor at the nearby university. We did a floristic inventory in Southern Utah. So I got to backpack, look at plants. And so that's what got me in sort of the plant biology side of biology was those kinds of experiences. Interesting. So from a young age, you, you know, cause I remember going on a scouting trip and I think, I think we were doing birding and, and for me, I, you know, I was, I, that was just not, you know, it's like, a, I'm just like staring at a bush and I didn't, I didn't see all of the magic in it that you did. I'm a, I'm a little kid just, you know, staring at a bush. So I'm, I'm curious, what is it about that? Like, what is it about you or what is it about that experience that, how, how did you appreciate it in a way that I couldn't as a, as a child? I don't know. Um, there was just something magical for the very first time you go to a wetlands and there's just these exotic birds with crazy, you know, color patterns and there's stuff flying everywhere. And you're just overwhelmed by the variety. And yeah, you know, if you're just kind of looking at a few drab sparrows in the bushes somewhere, that that's not fun. So, you know, when you want to introduce somebody to birding, you got to take them to a wetland okay, where they can see all the really cool shorebirds and ducks and stuff like that. Pelicans. Yeah. I, I will say we went on a camp out uh, one time and it was fun walking on the camp out with you because you could point out, you know, all of the different trees and berries and and so it's 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 great to be getting all of this knowledge and uh, as you're walking along the paths. Yeah, I, having an enthusiastic mentor <laughs> is an important part, and that that's what made Mr. Webb such an awesome biology teacher. He just was so excited about it. Even the kids who didn't really want to get into it, they couldn't help it, <laughs> and everyone else was getting into it. So it was just infectious. Wow. Yeah, the value of a great teacher. Yeah. So I, I liked, I liked plants. I liked ecology. I liked being outside, but somewhere I got this idealistic idea that I needed to feed the world. <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but just this idea that, boy, there's a lot, well, I, I guess I was plugged into the environment. And so I was aware of a lot of environmental problems and global poverty and issues like that. So my, my interest shifted more to uh, maybe we can genetically engineer crops to feed more people and, use less land to produce the same amount of food. And so during my undergrad, I was a botany major, but I took some cell and molecular classes in genetics and they were fascinating too. And that's what I found in my life is the more I learn about any topic, like, oh, that's really fascinating, right? So, so I've always just had a wide variety of interests. I've liked languages and music and really enjoyed math and performing and choir and uh but you know my 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 consistent theme is i have a hard time being consistent in any uh one area <laughs> i can <laughs> so, relate so I've, I've always been a generalist but uh the love of nature and and then later cattle those have for whatever reason those have never gone away so that's sort of what i've stuck with and soccer no oh, yeah yeah i enjoyed playing a lot of soccer growing up 
So, so yeah, how did you choose your major then? Was it a pretty clear choice for you when you decided to go to the university? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I just knew I wanted to do something involving plants, which does not mean I'm a good gardener or horticulturalist. <laughs> like people, and I'm sorry, I don't have any practical advice for you on raising your plants. I just know how they work on the inside. Was <laughs> When I got to the end of my plant biology education, that was sort of where I was. But you also are are good at cutting trees, you, you know. I mean, you know about trees, and and you you helped us a little bit with our oak trees, and yeah, yeah. That's sort of a byproduct of uh, ranching and farming is you have to be able to get rid of trees when they're in the wrong place, and it's just satisfying to cut up a tree. <laughs> so I've done a little bit of work with the tree service, you know, on the ground crew, and uh, I sell firewood every winter, and like running a saw. Yeah, it's just kind of fun physical side of what I do. Okay, so you go to undergrad then and you know you want to study plants and you you get this idea of wanting to feed the world. So as you were thinking about your career in undergrad, did you do internships or how I did, did you end up? I did research in a couple of different labs okay. at the university. Yeah, so uh, one one lab they studied plant, well, respiration in plants. And in the other lab, we worked on quinoa, which is a South American crop. There's a big quinoa research group at BYU. It's still going. And uh, that, you know, that lined up a lot with my interests, trying to develop a crop that was important in uh, the developing world that wasn't really a cash crop where most of the research is focused. So as you're, as you're thinking, okay, it's, it's, I'm going to graduate here. How am I going to make an income and mesh this with my interest? How did you decide to continue your, ultimately your education? Sure. Well, my dad being a professor, that was just sort of the default track, right? It was what I knew and was familiar with. And um, I, I wanted to develop uh new varieties of crops, genetically engineered crops, and that's just something that requires uh, graduate education. So I went to North Carolina State and pursued a PhD in plant biology with a minor in biotechnology. And I ended up, instead of working on genetically modifying crops, I worked on plant diseases, fungal diseases in plants, and characterizing genes and proteins in those plant microbe interactions. Um, and again, it was one of those things where I wouldn't have picked that, but I really liked the program there. And that's where the grant funding was for that project. And the more I worked on it, hey, this is interesting, too. So <laughs> I, I uh, uh, specialized in that. But as I was getting near the end of the process, I realized that I just didn't have what it took to be an academic researcher in terms of temperament and interests and and focus. I I didn't want to write grant proposals. Um, you know, being a biologist in the scientific sense requires hyper-specialization. You have to become a world expert on one little area, and you have to really love that or convince yourself that you do. And um, you also have to have a really high threshold for experiments not working and doing them again. And again, which is funny, I, I say that was a deterrent to me continuing down that path, but 
that's kind of <laughs> that theme repeats in agriculture yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and you knew you were a generalist. Yeah, yeah. I, I try. Well, I I don't know that I knew. I was trying to be a specialist, and I just had a really hard time making myself be that. What did you do your dissertation on? So I worked on a mold that grows on developing corn and uh, peanuts, and it produces a toxin. And so I studied uh, plant proteins that are antifungal, and then I also studied genes in the biosynthetic pathway for the toxin that this fungus produces. So as you're doing your PhD, you're starting to realize that you're probably not going to be a full-time researcher, but you were still interested in teaching? Or did you, at that point in your PhD, did you start looking at going into industry or were you still the mindset of going into academia, just more of the teaching school? So I started to explore everything I could do with my degree. Um, I looked at being, you know, patent law. I looked oh, wow. at uh, working in biotechnology industry. Uh, I was in North Carolina and there was some decent plant biology industry there. And along this period, in the same time, somehow I stumbled upon a book about live on a homestead and raise all your own food. And uh, maybe it was some escapism, right, during the the final crucible of finishing <laughs> your dissertation. But I really enjoyed reading about all the things you could do on one acre of land to produce as much food as possible. And there was something really satisfying about that. So I started to read uh, more on that. I I went to the library at, at the college and I searched up how to become a farmer. And uh, there were not a lot of books on that, oh. but there there was one book called You Can Farm by Joel Salatin, who's a pretty big name in, he's probably the big name in regenerative agriculture. And I read about how he used ecology principles and agricultural principles to produce food and make a living. And I was sold at that point. I just realized, wow, I, this is fascinating. I don't know when I can do it, but this is what I want to do with my life. And so about how old are you at this point? Uh, 27, 28. Okay. Like that. Maybe 20, yeah. So you're exploring all these options, but then you ended up still going into academia for a while. So how did right. that yeah, I, I had small children. I needed to provide for my family and find some sort of justification for spending <laughs> so many years in school. And so I I thought, well, if I could find a community college or junior college where I teach, that would be a that'd be a low stress professional option that would give me some summers and time to start learning how to raise livestock and develop my other interest. Interesting. So going into it, going to a teaching school was kind of all part of the long-term plan. Correct. Yeah. I essentially, I looked at all the states, not too hot, not too cold and where land might be affordable, which pretty much narrowed it down to the Midwest. Interesting. Yeah. And so that's where you were started applying to junior colleges, community colleges was in that region. Correct. Yep. And, you know, I, I was in North Carolina, so it was green and lots of trees. And so I thought, I don't want to be on the Great Plains because it's just a, you know, <laughs> it's a flat, windy, uh, topographically boring place. But 
I saw a couple of openings in Kansas and I had a distinct feeling that I did not have a job and I better not <laughs> turn down available options. And so I, I applied in Hutchinson, Kansas at the community college there and had a really good interview. And I liked the faculty. They felt like, how do I say this without being insulting? They just felt like normal people <laughs> uh, versus, you know, your faculty, the research one, it's, universities they're they're also normal people but they're you know they they think they know everything <laughs> and they really are experts in their field and so it's just a different feeling around community college faculty I said I could hang out with people like this you know there is uh, having been at well a number of different universities one thing I was surprised at at some of the places I've been um or maybe even well, I wouldn't say in all of the places, some of the people, but some of the people you meet, you really do meet some brilliant, arrogant people. <laughs> and <laughs> sure. I was thinking, you know, like, oh, we're, we're, you know, going into the scientific field. So we're all going to be very curious and open-minded. And while there is a lot of that in a lot of places, you also really do find some very kind of strong-willed strong-minded people who are very confident in the the things they know and and confident in the things they think they know uh agreed so you interviewed did you have other interviews at other schools i let's see i did yeah well i i had interviews scheduled at a couple other schools but i the more i looked at this place i said you know this is this is what i'm looking for and they had the offer and so I accepted. So what were you teaching? Yeah, so I initially I taught general biology for non-majors. So biology for people who had to have a science credit, you know, with a lab attached and did not pick biology because they loved biology. And then I also, over time, I started teaching anatomy and physiology. And I also taught a class for students going to become radiology technicians, biology for radiology. And then I taught a science major's lab. So it, it wasn't a very wide selection of topics. And as you'll learn about me, or as you know about me, you know, after I need some variety and I, I taught there for eight years, but uh, after a while, it was it was hard to keep teaching the the same topics for sure. But see, I was thinking as you were describing it, I was like, oh, this is kind of a broad set of topics from biology to a nat and phys. That, yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, and the nice thing about general biology is you do get to cover from atoms all the way to the biosphere. So it was it was fun to cover everything. And, you know, the nice thing about teaching is you go through the semester and then the project's over and then you get to start over. Which is, you know, after doing a dissertation that felt like the never-ending project, it was nice to have some seasonality and cyclical <laughs> patterns to work. Did you have a favorite class that you were teaching? Um, I think I think over time the anatomy and physiology became a favorite because the students were dialed in. They all needed it to go on to some sort of healthcare profession and so they wanted to do well and they you know most of them were working hard and and they they you know you felt needed <laughs> so yeah. yeah so you taught for eight years are you teaching like 
three classes a semester, four classes a semester? Uh, so in the community college world, you have a pretty high teaching load because you don't have a research component. And so your base teaching load is 15 credit hours per semester, fall and spring. So wow. if you did three credit hour lecture, that would be five sections of that lecture. Of course, I had labs. And so I, I the most I would ever have of the exact same lecture would be three. But, you know, by the third time you're giving that lecture, you're you're tired of hearing yourself. <laughs> yeah, so that is a yeah different. So the research institution, you're teaching maybe one class a semester or two classes a semester if you're on the research track and then doing research the rest of the time. So you're teaching five classes a semester. So in, in that instance, the variety is nice, but anytime you're teaching more than one class, of course, it takes a lot more time to have these different preps. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, just a lot of a lot of grading. Right, I taught a lot of labs. So and we didn't have like a, a TA to help grade the labs or anything like that. You were you were it for your students. So in the community college, what was your what was your favorite thing about teaching? And, and what would you say was your least favorite thing? Uh, my favorite thing was the students. They were you just got a wide variety of students. They were respectful, uh, not a lot of attitude. I just never had attitude problems from the students. They were uh, just, they enjoyed being around each other. And, you know, not all of them were excited about <laughs> learning or education. Or... You know, a lot of them were there to play sports or, you know, just, or focus on their major, whatever that may be. But they were by and large, uh, conscientious, respectful, and just, you know, fun. It's fun to be around college age students. They're, they're high energy and mm -hmm. they see the world through fresh eyes and it's enjoyable. And how about the worst thing or the hardest thing? Oh, just monotony, right? Grading the same assignment again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. But the colleagues were great. The students were great. And so that's what made it uh, doable. For sure. And so what was your tenure requirements and how long did it take you to get tenure? A tenure is a three-year process in the state of Kansas. And it's based entirely on your teaching reviews and your supervisor evaluation. You don't have to write up a tenure package. Uh, so yeah, it's just, it's hundred percent on your teaching, which is, you know, that's, that's the mission of those those institutions, yeah. and um, they take it pretty seriously. And so then you got tenure, and the whole time while you're teaching, you're still kind of thinking about the ranch. Right. Yeah, and I, I bought a, a small property and started raising chickens. Chickens are the gateway drug of, <laughs> of agriculture, of livestock agriculture, and then added some goats, and uh, then I was able to talk someone into leasing me 20 acres of pasture and added some cattle and, you know, just kept learning. So this is the eight years while you're still a community college professor. At what point did you decide to just go full time? And, and how did you, how do you go about that? How do you leave tenure and go all in on this dream you've had for more than a decade? Uh, well, the, the next part of the story is that I 
I divorced and remarried. So I moved to a non-tenure track teaching and academic advising position for three years at, at, at UMKC, University of Missouri, Kansas City. And that involved a commute. But as soon as I moved to Lawrence, I was able to find a 10-acre piece of ground that no one was really doing anything with and lease it. So I brought my goats and chickens up. And Oh, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> so you did bring your, your animals oh, yeah. with you? Yeah, it was it was entertaining pulling into town with all of that. I I had a U-Haul and I thought I could put the goats. I had a I just had a handful of goats. I thought I could put them in the back, but it just got too hot. And so I put them up in the cab with me and my livestock dog. <laughs> goats are in there. <laughs> <laughs> and of course along the way they made a mess and so my my wife is not excited when I asked her to meet me and bring supplies to help clean it up. <laughs> when I pulled into town. <laughs> so, but you don't have cows yet. Right. Well, yeah. So the next part of the story is I'm working in Kansas City and I have goats and they start to, you know, goats get out unless you have really good fencing. And after that happened a couple of times while I was in Kansas City, I decided, well, cattle are easier to keep than goats. So I'm just going to sell all these goats and start raising cattle. So at that point I would buy a steer and you know, keep him grass fed until he's big enough and then find people to go in to buy the beef and use a local processor. And I just started building that business. So going back real quick, how do goats get out? Do they jump the fence? Do the fences break? Like what? Yeah, they're future? just less respectful of electric fence and they, they are more prone to jump or, you know, they're more curious about what's on the other side and stuff like that. Well, I think I've told you this and uh, I'm not proud of it, but at the time when this happened, I just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. When I was in high school, uh, me and my buddies would ride four wheelers in the hills behind our town, and we would ride into a pasture and start chasing the cows on the four wheeler. And one of the most amazing things I ever saw was uh, we ran this cow basically into a corner. And I'm just like so curious what it's going to do. And it just jumps the fence so easily. Yep. Takes a right turn, jumps the cattle guard right back into the pasture. And <laughs> so that was my first exposure. Well, one, I didn't know cows could jump. Two, I didn't know they could leave at any moment. They can leave. Yeah. <laughs> if they're in yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, fencing is primarily a psychological barrier, even even a good physical perimeter fence. <laughs> like we use mainly electric fencing, which is also, you know, mostly psychological. If they if they hit it at a at a gallop, right, they're just going to go straight through it. But they just they want to be where their friends are and they don't want to feel pain. So <laughs> they, they stay inside the fence. There's a life metaphor in there somewhere. <laughs> well, and it, it's funny too because I guess I just hadn't thought of it in those terms. Of one, they can jump the fence, but two, they can run through the fence at any moment as well. I mean, maybe they get tangled up in some of the wires or something. Yeah, yeah. So I, I did strong. something stupid similarly once, where there's a cow on one side of the fence and I was on the other. I'm going to chase this thing, and it started running and it just kind of ran through the barbed wire fence and I felt really bad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but um yeah. They are powerful animals that don't know their strength. So you so you decide to start raising cattle, but 
you also, it wasn't just about trying to maximize the number of cattle per square inch of, of your ranch either. No. So another person I found along the way was Alan Savory, who he's from uh, Zimbabwe, actually from European background, but huh. uh, he, he developed this concept called holistic management, which is using livestock in arid environments to promote uh, ecological health and produce food. And that was counter to everything I'd learned growing up, you know, about the environment out, out West cattle are the devil and from an environmental point of view, right? They just overgraze everything and, turned everything into the desert. But what uh, Alan Savory showed is, well, if you exclude cattle, arid environments still desertify. And so, yes, if you leave them to continuously graze a large area, they will degrade the environment. But if you remove large herbivores from an environment, then it will still degrade and desertify. So there's this concept where you graze cattle at high densities for sh very short duration and then they move which mimics what we think would happen if they were in large natural herds with you know pack hunting herbivores chasing them all over the landscape and so it's that system that uh, grass has evolved under that uh, regenerative ranchers try to mimic so high stocking density on a small area for one, two, three days maximum, the shorter, the better, and then move to the next area. And the benefits are profound. Did you know about this before you started buying your first cattle? Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd come across Alan Savory prior to that. So as you start, as you trade out your goats for the cattle, you were you. this was the plan from the beginning then? It was the hope. Yeah, it, it's kind of hard to do it at a, on 10 acres with two or three or four head <laughs> at a time. But but that was what I wanted to do. And actually, before I, I my very first time doing this was actually before I moved up to Lawrence, when I'd gotten that 20 acre pasture, I talked to a local cattle owner to, hey, bring in your cattle, just pay me a certain amount per day per head to graze them on my pasture, and I'll rotate them around and see how this goes. And it, it worked fantastically i mean the cattle figure it out really quickly they they like to move somewhere fresh where they're not you know smelling their own byproducts mm -hmm. and uh it's good for the grass and and so that i i i'd sort of done a proof of concept with about 40 head of cattle on a small pasture and and so i just knew it was the kind of work that was satisfying for me for some reason <laughs> for whatever reason right just seeing a really healthy stand of forage turning the cattle into it seeing them trample it you know mix mix the carbon back into the soil fertilize it and then move on there's just something really deeply i don't know why <laughs> rewarding for me about about that process so is that is this the beginning of eco cattle then when you trade the goats and you yeah yeah, the guy I was leasing from, he was in a small business network referral chapter here in Lawrence. And he said, hey, you should come visit us and start a business, you know. And I thought, well, what's what encapsulates what I'm trying to do? And 
Well, I thought eco cattle, right? I, I like the ecology. I like the cattle and I want to produce something of value that people can eat when it's all said and done. And so that that's where I came up with that name. And my logo is uh, kind of the recycling arrows with a cow and grass in the middle. Right. And you, you're sending out weekly uh, or biweekly newsletters. Yeah. Yeah. We we try to just keep our customer base uh, informed with what we're doing. I think a lot of people connect with landscape and agriculture and environment and they I, I think all of us sort of want that and so uh, it's it's something that we do that people enjoy seeing and helps keep us connected to our customers what's the most challenging thing or what are some of the biggest challenges you deal with running eco cattle well there's a lot of challenges it's a very, you know, I think we were talking about it once. You said you're playing farmland in real life or Farmville. Yeah. Is that the game? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's shifting variables. Every season has different weather, uh, hay prices, cattle prices, fuel prices fluctuate. Um, you have to market your product. So you have to learn about advertising and marketing, which I'm not excited about, right? I just, I'm interested in production, but in order to produce, I need to market and and then everything, you know, you're a startup in an industry where you have well-established people who have been doing it for generations who think you're crazy. <laughs> and uh, and then everything, you know, double your budget and double your timeline. And that's kind of accurate versus what you projected on your spreadsheet. In uh, one of the recent emails from your newsletter, you were excited about uh, a dung beetle. <laughs> Can you describe why? Sure. So, I mean, one of our goals is nutrient cycling, which is taking your all of your plant biomass and helping it decompose and cycle back into nutrients available for the next group of plants that are going to grow up through that. And the cattle are a critical part of that because I think of a cow, right? It's gut is a giant reservoir of microbes that are that break down biomass and you want them spreading that all over the landscape mixing it into the soil and the problem and challenge is that flies like that stuff too and so you want as many earthworms and dung beetles and other beneficial invertebrates to cycle that manure back into the soil as quickly as possible. And so dung beetles are one of nature's solutions to an excess resource. And of course, a lot of, uh, a lot of producers, they deworm their cattle, which kills their earthworms, it harms the other insects. And so they just never get to the benefits of what's out there and, and what you can work with instead of against. So we dung beetles for us is an indicator that we're doing things the right way and so we were just thrilled to and if we figure if we saw one then there's a whole bunch that we didn't see yeah 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 because what they'll do is they'll they'll roll up a ball of manure and they'll dig a tunnel and they'll bury it so that's providing tunneling through your soil which is good for soil structure and water infiltration and nutrient cycling it provides nutrient cycling as well and helps cut down flies. So it's a it's a big win. 
what's the what's the benefit of flies and what's the purpose of flies because they are everywhere on the branch <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't know what the benefit is the, <laughs> they are flies are a problem right for us because you know they they're they're living off the blood of your animals <laughs> and they annoy them so um i'm sure ecologically they have some greater purpose but you know, from a cattle production standpoint, we're just trying to figure out ways to mitigate them. We'll never defeat them entirely, but <laughs> just try to mitigate them. So dumb question, but the cattle are annoyed by the flies because they're just everywhere, but I guess there's just nothing the cows can do about it. Yeah, they swish their tail and move and just, it's just part of being a cow. You just get bitten by flies from, uh, you know, June through September. So as you're thinking about eco cattle and this career path that you've chosen, where do you find the most satisfaction? Um, well, there's two levels. Like there's the, what would I call it? The hedonic benefits of just being outside and seeing something, helping to make something beautiful and functional and uh, in tune with the needs of wildlife and the ecosystem so that that's just at a more primal level, just satisfying. And then at a at a different level, just taking a, an idea and a dream and making it happen and learning and failing and improving along the way. Um, my dad would always share the quote from Thomas Paine. He said, "What we achieve too cheaply, we esteem too lightly." Oh, cool. to dearness only that gives everything its value and so i love doing it but it's also really hard to be a startup in and uh you know a long-standing industry and to learn a lot uh through trial and error yeah what's your long-term goal like what's your current dream i was listening to steve young give a talk the other day and his dad used to always tell him, you always have to have a plan. You always have to have a dream. And sometimes, so Steve's dad was named Grit and Grit would ask him, you know, what's your, what's your plan? And Steve would say, you know, I'm going to be a hall of famer. And Grit was like, no, that's your dream. What's your plan? <laughs> and uh -huh. Uh -huh. continue on with the story. Uh, once Steve finished playing in the NFL, his dad asked him one day, what's your dream? <laughs> Cause he'd already achieved his uh, main yeah. dream, but what, what's your What's your dream? Uh, so my dream would be to successfully implement all of these holistic management principles at a at a practical scale to where, hey, I can support myself and my business partner. I, I didn't bring up that part of the story, but I've got a business partner, which has been critical. Like we can, this thing pays for itself and pays for me. And and each year, our soil quality gets better, our beef product gets better, and our biodiversity on our ranches gets better. And so that's sort of my, I guess that's my midterm goal. And then beyond that, I'd just love to work with other people that want to do it, help them succeed. Um, and that, you know, that goes back all the way to this idealistic feed the world thing. It's a great model. And it's something that can be really beneficial. It, it, it is beneficial. It's making a huge difference on, in places all over the world. Uh, they did a, a guy who studied this at Texas A&M, uh, Richard Teague, 
he looked at the soil survey of Texas, all the ranch land in Texas, and he looked for all of the ranches that had the highest soil organic matter, which basically that tells you um, it's a soil health indicator. And without fail, every ranch that had the highest soil organic matter followed holistic management principles. And so I just, I'd like to be a success story and then help create other success stories down the road. It's interesting to think about kind of the short-term benefits and the long-term consequence of pesticides and what we put into the ground and what we put into our bodies. It can be so easy for many of us, if not all of us, to just take for granted that you know these these pesticides they stay around for a long time and uh if they get into water we treat the water but then there's consequences to that and then we're dealing with the consequences of the consequences and kind of like you were saying earlier we end up fighting against kind of nature in a battle that at some point you have to pay a cost for yeah for sure and especially places like Utah, like Arizona, like California, where there's lower precipitation. Uh, you, you look at the environmental challenges in those areas where, okay, we don't have enough precipitation, but then we have big flooding problems. <laughs> we have wildfire problems. Uh, we have soil erosion problems. All of these are things that cattle, if managed properly, can address and improve so, and, and I think it's catching on in the industry. I think most cattlemen, cattle producers, they've heard of these ideas now. But for a lot of them, it's like, well, it's it's management intensive and it doesn't fit into my system. But bit by bit, it, it's, it's something people are aware of now. Um, grazing, well, that's a whole other, anyway, it's, it's, it's making its way into general consciousness in the agricultural production act community and i just think it needs just needs a few more uh proof of concept examples in every county hmm. to to continue to spread the idea well as we wrap up if if you had to you know as you think back on your career and your interests and um your successes and challenges are there any lessons that you've learned that you would most like to pass on to others yeah, for sure. Uh, first one I thought of was a quote that I think Thomas S. Monson shares this pretty regularly. He's, it said, uh, history turns on small hinges. Mm. And another cliche is the little things are the big things. And so as I look at my own successes and failures, what I've observed is that brilliance, talent, and grand gestures are never going to outperform small, consistent persistent efforts. And so I see that in some areas of my life where, yeah, I did not make small, consistent, persistent efforts. And I may have had felt like I had more ability or, or talent in an area, but over time you see yourself get surpassed and uh, you see people who, boy, I knew you in high school and you just seemed like a scrub. And now you're so accomplished and professional and impressive Right. Well, because they were consistent and persistent in in small things in an area that they really cared about. It's a simple, unappreciated, profound idea. 
and it, and it's taught in the tortoise and the hare, right? <laughs> it is yeah. such a simple book, but just like slow, steady, consistent over the long run, it just can't be beat or it's hard to beat. Yeah, the tree root's always going to push up the sidewalk if you give it enough time. Yeah, so great insight, great quotes. Any other lessons you'd like to share? I, I guess the other thing, and we didn't get into this too much, was just don't try to go it alone. Um, for me, adding a business partner added a level of accountability and someone to share ideas with, and we complement each other's strengths in a lot of ways. You know, same thing with with marriage or a good friendship. It's just if if you just work it between your own ears, <laughs> it just you need the filter of uh, of other people who who can help you uh, develop and weed out the bad ideas and and fertilize the good ones. Uh, a friend of mine, he was telling me the other day that everybody needs a coach in their life to tell them when they're being stupid. Yeah. And that is, you know, as a, as a football player, you know, they, they film every single practice, every single play from every practice. And then you watch it the next day and, and the coach, you know, the good coaches, of course, are inspiring and helpful, but they are pointing out every little thing. And we do need that. We do need people to help us out and push us. And I was even thinking in terms of uh, when I first met you, I was you were you were going to perform a song and you started singing and it blew me away. So I I recorded you singing, but I, I didn't record the video of you. I was recording the ground just so I could get pick up the audio. Uh -huh. So then I went home and, and played it for my wife and you were singing. Um, is it bring him home? Yeah. Yeah. Bring him home from bring, Les Miserables. Bring him home from Les Miserables. Um, but you're, how would you describe the, the, uh, training that you received in music oh uh it, it'd be the same thing right continually pointing out your mistakes and and then pointing out the successes and and trying to balance those and i'm sure i'm sure i cried in some singing lessons you know i was a pretty sensitive soul <laughs> when i first started <laughs> taking singing in like junior high and yeah it's just hard to be told you're doing something wrong when, you know, you think you're so wonderful. <laughs> and how many, how many years did you take singing lessons? Oh, I did it all through junior high and high school. And when I say singing lessons, it's, it's not, you know, it's hard to appreciate what kind of singer you are. How do you, how, what kind of singer are you, I guess? So, yeah, I'd learned classical style singing. So I'm a classical baritone and we just, we had a really good couple of really good neighborhood uh, singing teachers and my older brother does this professionally and I just couldn't be consistent with it so <laughs> I in fact he he gave me a, a voice lesson a couple of years ago and he said man if I just had you know six months to a year to work with you we could we could get you pretty good because <laughs> he, he's like I know exactly what your voice is because we have the same voice so yeah um, yeah but but hey, it, you know it's it's a lot of trial and error and um and of course, kind of like watching your own film, listening to yourself sing, it's just so painful because, oh, the way you sound on, on a recording oh, yeah, different yeah. than how you sound in your own ears. When you say your brother does this professionally, who does he sing professionally for? So he auditions for roles across the country and will travel and rehearse for a couple of weeks and then perform. And then he also, he teaches as an adjunct 
professor teaches voice as well. And when you say classically trained, so is is that opera or is it not? Is opera something? Yeah, different? operatic style for okay. sure. Uh huh. Well, anyway, this when you were performing, you know, I didn't I didn't know you could sing, and I I certainly didn't know you had been trained in classical operatic style. And so as you were singing, bring him home from Les Mis and, you know, just blowing me away. And so what I did, like I said, I was, I was recording the audio and then for the very last two seconds, I shifted the phone up and um, filmed you to, sh to later then share with my wife and, you know, playing the audio. And she's like, Oh my gosh, this is just like amazing. Like so good. And then, sees that it's you and I would never, you know, you just see you and you would never guess that um, <laughs> you're such an incredible singer. Well, I love the lessons you shared. I think they're fantastic. They're perfect for the podcast. Winning the most interesting man in the world is, is a really tough competition, but I wouldn't count you out because <laughs> of your interests and knowledge in so many fields uh, it's it's so great to hear your story and and learn more about you and and learn your lessons. So uh, thanks so much for coming on today, Rob. Oh, it's been a pleasure, and I'm a I'm a regular listener to Mickles and Dimes, and I appreciate all that you do. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. I loved hearing Rob's story and learning about his dream to feed the world, and of course, the lessons and quotes he shared were fantastic. First, history turns on small hinges, and the little things are the big things. As Rob looked at the success and failures of himself and others, he observed that brilliance, talent, and grand gestures never outperform small, consistent, persistent efforts. Those who succeed are consistent and persistent in small things in an area they really care about. The tree root will always push up the sidewalk if you give it enough time. Second, don't try to go it alone. If we're depending only on the knowledge in our own heads, we're limiting ourselves. For Rob, that meant adding a business partner to provide accountability and someone to share ideas with. We need the filter of other people who can help us weed out the bad ideas and fertilize the good ones. I admire and respect Rob for who he is and the dreams he has. He is incredibly smart, kind, interesting, and talented. He left the ease, consistency, and predictability of tenure to return to the endless challenges, struggles, and unpredictability of agriculture. He embodies the quote he shared by Thomas Paine, What we obtain too cheaply, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Finally, as Rob and I were wrapping up the interview, I mentioned that I had recorded him sing Bring Him Home on my cell phone. That recording is what you can hear now. The audio quality is not great, but Rob's voice is fantastic, and it will give you yet another glimpse into how talented Rob is. And if you're like me and want Rob to succeed, visit eco-cattle.com to learn more about Rob and his goal to feed the world.